Well, I don't know if it's train day or not train day. I don't know what day it is. But it's, uh, I would like to import this weather back to Atlanta when we go home. Uh, this, this low humidity thing, there's something to it. And they always say in the South, if it weren't this humid, how would the trees ever grow? I'm, I'm having trouble holding on to that argument in the midst of the redwoods. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, greetings. We are um, in session three, chapter three of the book of Ruth tonight. As you're going ahead and turn that in your Bibles, did you get a handout on your way in? If you didn't, raise your hand. See, we're doing better about this. It's very. Don't be embarrassed. If you didn't get one, raise your hand. We'll... We'll, get, we'll ush one to you. What else do ushers do but ush? It needs to be a verb, I think. Several of you have asked about the, the resources back on the table, and um, my strong suit is not selling. So um, it's like you haven't told us about those, and I'm sorry about that. And mostly my wife was going, we do not want to take all this stuff home. So crazy Ellen has lost her lease. Everything must go. Um, these DVD series, you get a DVD and a workbook. They're $35. That's a really, really good price, less than it normally is on our website. Crucible, The Choices That Changed Your Life Forever, is on the life of David. It looks at six forks in the road that he faced. Sometimes he made good choices, sometimes not so good choices. And um, the, the application of this to our lives, it just, it just jumps off the page. It's one life against another. Detour, Old Testament Joseph, finding purpose when life doesn't make sense. Just a random survey. Has God ever, you know, have you ever disagreed either with God's processes in your life or God's timing in your life? Anybody ever bump into one of those two things? Yeah, like 14 of us. This is good. This is good. <laughs> Chosen is a study of the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you're from a Catholic background, you know her very, very well. You were raised to adore her. Protestants do a big pendulum swing from that and go, <gasps> and we were raised to ignore her. Clearly a great approach. The truth of the matter is, what, what if we just open up the scriptures and explore her life? Let the story speak for itself. And again, whether you're a man or a woman, there is so much. I think she was tougher than any Navy SEAL or Army Ranger. Other than Jesus himself, what God asked her to do was tough. And um, there's, there's great lessons to be had there. Revolution, if you were here Dallas week last year, um, we did a, a few of these messages, I think maybe three out of six. Uh, the subtitles, How Millennials Can Change the World. If you're not a 20 or 30-something, then the question is, and what do they need from the rest of us? They need us to get off their case and on their team. Barna did a survey recently, found millennials are the most likely generation to share their faith of any generation of Christians. Did you know that? Now they resist labels. They resist commitments. If you're having a three-week Bible study, they're like, man, I don't do long-term commitments. Um, <laughs> you know, and there, there's, some, there's some challenges with this group. Um, we have two of them in our family, a 31 and a 28-year-old. Um, I, I am not giving up on this generation. I see tremendous strength in this generation. This is the most cause-oriented generation we've had in our country um, in, in years. Now, they know what needs to change. 
They're going to fix sex trafficking. They're going to end world hunger. And they're tremendously social justice-minded, as was Josiah. He was going to tear down false worship. But until he discovered the word of God, he didn't know what to build in the place. And I've had so many times when I get to, when I get to teach this to young adults, they will come up in tears. Um, one young woman at Thrive Conference came up and goes, can I buy two of those DVD series? I go, yeah, why do you need two? And she goes, one for my parents and one for my pastor. They both think, they, they both think our generation is totally worthless and will be the death not just of America but of God's church and the world. And I said, wow. And um, she goes, how much are they? I go, how much do you have? And she says, $10. And I said, you know, that's so cool. They're on special today for $5 each. And <laughs> our VP of finance happened to be with me on this trip. He goes, Phil, you know, like nonprofit, that's our tax status. That's not our mission statement. Do you understand that? And I'm like, yeah, I, I got that. Chiseled is the newest one. Um, all of these, again, test-driven at Mount Hermon and uh, in a lot of ways birthed here. This is on the life of Simon Peter and how God chiseled us. Last year, I was using a hammer and chisel the other week that I was here. Mike got it for me, and somebody kept taking it and stealing it. This year, they have a whole tool rack behind me. I'm like, you're a little bit late on that one. But anyway, they're $35 each, or you can get all five for $139 if you want to really stock up and um, get armed and dangerous for God. Please go by tonight. I'll guarantee you tomorrow night, that's going to be buried back there, and we're going to sell out, and you're going to go, oh, well, you didn't ship enough. Well, be one of the early birds tonight and in the morning, and then, then you can laugh at the people who have to pay $5 shipping. So there you go. Shall we pray? And let's jump in. Father, thank you again for our worship. Thank you again for this place, 113 years. God, may you keep this ministry on mission committed to the integrity of your scriptures, to the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may this be a place where it's safe to gather and where people can be honest, as it's been now for generations. Lord, preserve this ministry, even grow it, make it stronger. Um, it's more needed now than when it was birthed 113 years ago. So thank you for Mount Hermon and the great team that leads us and serves here. Now as we look in your word tonight, Lord, again, let it not be a history lesson, but Father, make it more relevant than tomorrow's newspaper as we look into your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter 3. So Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, have come from Moab. They've resettled in Bethlehem. Naomi was from there. But Ruth is not from there. Where is Ruth from? Anybody remember? Moab. Moab. Ruth the Moabitess. <laughs> Ruth the, from Moab, not from around here. Ruth, she's definitely not one of us. A stranger, an alien. Does she really belong? How will she be welcomed? How will they support themselves? A single mom, a, a, a widower. Naomi is still deep, deep, deep in grief. She believes that God himself has oppressed her and brought all of this evil upon her. It's great to believe in God's sovereignty, but that is not the only explanation for hard times in life. It's not always that God is bringing discipline. Sometimes it's a trial to make us stronger. Sometimes just a, it's a random, messed up part of living in a world inflicted, affected by sin as 
my brother talked about this morning. Now, they're back in the land. How will they live? Well, Ruth takes the initiative and she says, I'm going to go glean in the fields. I've heard that's the custom here. And she just happens to get to a field landed by, owned by a man named who? Boaz. And it just happens that Boaz just arrives at the field about that time. Isn't the world full of lovely coincidences, all orchestrated by a miracle-working God who sometimes chooses to remain anonymous? Well, that's all great. He's very generous. He provides for her. He comes to a high appreciation of her character. He looks beyond the label of Ruth from Moab, and he sees into the character of her heart. But what will happen now that harvest is over? That's the cliffhanger that the writer left us on at the end of, verse of chapter 2. We pick up the story in Ruth 3, verse 1. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that's Ruth, my daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Finding a home means fixing her up with a man. Now, jokes abound about your typical Jewish mother. And, and I, I'm not much for ethnic jokes and things like that, but, but if this were a room full of Jewish individuals, they'd go, well, of course there's jokes about it because it's all true. In fact, you all don't know the half of it. This is not, amen, this is not an unusual behavior here for Naomi. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Naomi's faith is beginning to be rekindled. The generosity of Boaz has woken up her faith. She's still deeply, deeply, deeply grieving. But hope is returning to her heart. My friends, we need to realize that grief does not signify the absence of faith. A lot of people believe it does. I even hear that it's taught of, oh, I'm sorry you've lost your loved one, but you know what the Bible says? God is a brother who sticks closer than any brother you could ever lose. He's the husband to the husbandless, and all of that is true. But please be sensitive when you dish out that wonderful biblical wisdom, as if grief is some sign of weakness of our faith. It absolutely is not. In fact, oftentimes, it's proof of the depth of the love that we had for that person. Please don't misunderstand that. Nor does faith mean there will be no grief. Some of the people I know with the deepest faith, they've suffered severe loss in their lives. It's the fact that they've chosen to hang with God in the midst of that disappointment, in the midst of the grief. If you've been through this, you know that at first it seems we grieve full time. It's what you're thinking about when you finally drift off to sleep at 2 a.m. It's what you're thinking about at 4.17 when you wake up and look at the digital clock. 
when finally the sky begins to turn bright, it's on your mind all the time. Everything you see seems to trigger a memory. Some of you are experiencing that week. You love being here, but your, your mind is absorbed with a loved one who you used to come here with. Grief is real. It's part of the life of the believer as well as the unbeliever. Well, I'm on the wrong page. I'm so sorry. Naomi devises a plan to find Ruth a home and a husband. There's the fill-in. There's the fill-in. Now, we do a lot of ministry in India. I told you that our, our folks there teach over a million people live, face-to-face each year. And um, Ellen and I were introducing some new marriage materials a couple years ago. That's a pretty big cultural gap, so we weren't really thinking they were going to teach what we were teaching. We were just ministering to the folks who serve with us and couples had come in and we didn't know that if you invite the spouse they also bring the kids who knew and our daughter was with us and they announced in front of the group that sister Emily is here and she will be leading vacation Bible school for you and she never really knew how many kids there were there were somewhere between 30 and 40 of them speaking about nine different languages near a cliff surrounded by rabid monkeys and she had one teenage helper in this task, and she gave me that die, die slow, suffer long dad look, assuming I knew about this. I knew nothing about any of this. And uh, wow, what an adventure. But it was so interesting. As Ellen and I are teaching about marriage, they said, well, you have a love marriage. I said, what's a love marriage? I think, well, obviously you have one. You even sometimes hold her hand. We've been watching you. you. And you're old, Phil. You've been married many, many, many years. I go, tell me about your marriage. Well, we have an arranged marriage, as most marriages are in India. Our director there, his, his son, Isaac, his marriage was arranged. Now they've modernized, so now the man and the woman, most times in a Christian context, get veto power. That's nice. But he and this woman that the families knew each other were introduced and they were sent off to a room and they were given 10 minutes to decide if they're going to marry. Ellen goes, 10 minutes? Phil can't even intro a sermon in 10 minutes some nights. What did you talk about? Well, we told, both told our life stories and then we told all about our dreams for the future. Ellen's like, did you talk like an auctioneer like this? And then I another one. No, it was very relaxed. And then came the knock on the door and have you made a decision? What do you believe the will of God is? You know, there's a lot of the world where marriages are still arranged. In the neighborhood where our kids grew up in Atlanta, a couple doors down, they were from Iran. Very, very modern Western kids, but they like, we don't like what we see of marriages here. We're going to let our parents arrange our marriage for us. It's not the worst idea in the world. Now, we would never do that. But we might bring our kids to Mount Hermon the same week every year. And don't you think he's cute? Don't you think she's cute? First time I was here, Dave Burns was over on the keyboards, and everybody I met, we met here in Mount Hermon. We were high school counselors together. We've been married 78 years since then, and on and on and on and on. I'm like, so I said to Dave during the worship service, I go, did you ever think about calling this place eHermony.com? I go, it's a, it's a marketing angle you're missing out on. And I, I was so proud of myself for that line. And Dave goes, actually, Phil, 
we call it Mount Hormone. <laughs> I, I very seldom don't get the last word. You know this plan, get dressed up, perfume yourself, go to the threshing floor, she'll give more details in a minute. I, I've, I've heard this, I've heard this preached, not, not just by those outside the faith, I've even heard it preached in church, that this is like seduction 101. The only trouble with that is it doesn't sync with the context in scripture, because the writer of Ruth has gone out of his way to show the godly character of both these people, Ruth and Boaz. In fact, I even one time saw this, and if you're really old like me, you remember the Reuben McIntyre song, Fancy? Shame, I'm judging you right now that you know that song. <laughs> it, it, it is not in the hymnal, and Jason will not be leading us in this song. It's a desperate mom who spends what little money she has left on her daughter, and she's like, Treat the men nice and they'll treat you nice. And I've, I've sometimes, I, I even saw that used one time to launch this. That's not what's going on here. And you'll see it as the story unfolds. So if your mind was going there, kind of just stop it from going there. Verse, you're like, my mind wasn't, but now you've introduced it, Phil. That's a whole new <laughs> interpretation. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Here she is, not even from God's covenant community, not even a native-born Israelite, but she's had this practice explained to her by her mother-in-law, this kinsman redeemer, the closest relative providing for the family. And she says, that's what I would love you to do. Ruth invites Boaz to fulfill his role as kinsman redeemer and marry her. She says, spread your garment over me. That's the same picture as Boaz had just prayed. Boaz prayed and he said, may God take his wings and give you shelter. Remember that? And we talked about how the wings of God are big enough to carry, to cover people from all backgrounds, regardless of their experience, regardless of what they've done in life, regardless of where they're from, God's wings are broad enough. And now it's as if God says, you know, Boaz, I'm going to let you answer your own prayer. You don't have wings like an eagle, but symbolically the covering with the bottom of your blanket is just about as good as the wings of God. God ever let you answer your own prayers? Sometimes we don't like that. Lord, somebody needs to do something. Lord, raise up someone in our church to be friendly to the visitors. It's just embarrassing how unfriendly our church is. And the Holy Spirit goes, you know, you could do that. You could do that. Boaz gets to answer his own prayer. This is so beautiful. This picture of the kinsman redeemer, 
I, I, was, I was moved by Jason's testimony, weren't you, when he was talking about the hard times in their life, their participation in the, in the foster care system. Ellen and I also went through five or six years of infertility. We were pursuing adoption. The agency we were using actually closed. Um, eventually, after three surgeries, um, we got two miracle babies. Emily was born, and three years later, Philip was born. We had another miscarriage later on. I mean, I mean, we get that pain. My question to you tonight, how many of you have adopted kids? Raise your hands. That's a bunch. That is so cool. There's something you need to notice here. You know, John 3 talks about we are born again, right? And Nicodemus, the first Irishman in the Bible, Nick Odemus, remember him? <laughs> he was second cousin of Patty O'Furniture. Um, <laughs> anyway... Nicodemus comes, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't have a good Irish accent. And, and Jesus explains the metaphor of being born again. Well, am I to enter into my mother's womb again and be born a second time? And Jesus explains, no, this is spiritual. This is birth from above. The birth metaphor is a great picture of salvation. But you know what? It's not sufficient. So God also couples that with the adoption metaphor. And if you're adoptive parents or you are adopted yourself, you need, to, you need to love this. But so should all Christians. Because it's not just the birth narrative that we are supernaturally conceived by faith in Jesus Christ. But we are adopted. Because you know the thing about adoption? Adoption says there is no pre-existing relationship. It is based upon the parent's choice to love. And God says, you got to have that side of it, too, if you're really going to understand the gospel. And passages like this help us to understand God's love for us. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Boaz interprets Ruth's actions not as seduction, not as desperation. He views it as kindness toward him. Because God, the ultimate multitasker, is also blessing Boaz through this. Notice he says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of more uh, of." high, noble character. Ruth's character has helped her overcome the prejudice of the townspeople. Boaz praises Ruth for her kindness and noble character. She had previously said the same thing of him. Although it is true that I am near of kin, uh-oh, not so simple. Like any great story, there's a complication. There's a plot twist. If we were in an old-time church, the organist would now shift to the minor key. Bom, 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 bom. It's just going a little too smoothly. It's like, it's like if you're watching an episode of a crime show on TV and you're like, man, they solved that one in a hurry. There's still 28 minutes left. You know they got the wrong person. <laughs> right? And this is just going a little too well. I love that about Scripture. 
that it doesn't give the clean, sanitized version of things. Scripture always teaches messy because life is messy. That's why heroes in the Bible are flawed. You didn't get that version if you grew up in Sunday school. Noah built the ark. The people supernaturally sailed to safety. It's Noah and his wife. What's her name, by the way? Mrs. Noah? It's actually, it's Joan. Remember Joan of Ark? Anyway, we, we don't know her name. We don't know her name. Three sons, three daughters-in-law, they get off of the ark. Everybody lives happily ever after. But that's not what happens. Noah doesn't end well. Many characters in Scripture don't end well because Scripture will always tell us the full truth. And life is messy. You can get the impression when you come hang out on a place like this, if the whole world were Mount Hermon, wouldn't life be really nice? Only what, if you stay here the whole summer and you're on staff, you find out there's whiny guests that are hard to please. There's kids sometimes who are brats. Usually it's the speaker's kids. You didn't bring your kids, I didn't bring my kids. We're smarter than that. It's a messy, messed up world. And the Bible always tells us the truth. Boaz says, although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Now lie here until morning. Boaz agrees to the plan but presents a complication, another kinsman redeemer, a closer relative who's entitled to the first option to fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer. What's that other person going to do? Well, read on and we'll find out. No, we're not. Because this writer is good at suspense. Nobody ever quits the book of Ruth halfway through. It was hilarious. Now, last night at train night, I thought there's going to be like, me and a few close friends here. But the writer of Ruth is too skillful. So even on train day, you all hauled your tired carcasses in here. Because it's like, oh man, we can't, we can't leave Ruth and Naomi in this state. That's, this book is so brilliantly written. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. You see in this verse, if you, if you take it and dissect it a little bit, both Ruth and Boaz are concerned about each other's reputation. It is a small town. People talk in a small town. People talk in big towns too, but it takes longer to get around. In Cisna Park, where we pastored um, the first church of our ministry. They had a weekly newspaper. Few things in the world were less relevant than that weekly newspaper because they also had Lober's Cafe. And it wasn't the women who went to Lober's Cafe. It was all the guys before they'd go into the fields to farm. And that was the main gossip network with, was the guys. It was so fascinating. Not too good in a lot of ways either. So by the time the newspaper came out, I was like, yawn. I knew that like three days ago. I'm sure talk spread like wildfire. He also said, bring me the shawl you were wearing and hold it out. 
And when she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and then wrapped it around her, put it on her, probably like a backpack. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? I'm betting she met her at the front door. She's probably watching for her coming down the street. Oh, she seems kind of bowed over. Maybe it didn't go well. No, but there's a smile on her face. Why is she smiling to about over? Oh, she's got all that grain on her back. How did it, how did it go? Well, I know where I am. How did it go? Then she told her everything that Boaz had done for her. Sorry. Boaz signals his desire to provide not just for Ruth, but for Naomi, his relative, right? He's going to take care of the whole extended family. And she added, he gave me six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. Wait. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. I know Boaz. No grass is going to grow under Boaz's feet. He's a man not just of integrity, he's a man of action. In the meantime, just wait. After Ruth had done all she could, Naomi tells her to wait. I think there's a really important truth here that, that, that we need to see. We already celebrated Ruth for being a woman of initiative. She says to her mother-in-law, even though she's not local, Naomi's from there, but her mother-in-law is so beaten down by the trials of life that Ruth initiates the action. She says, let me go out and glean and get food for us. We'll, we'll see if your God, who Naomi has a lot of doubts about, but we'll see if your God is able to provide for us. Ruth is great at taking initiative. Now, she's also taken initiative with the, with the encouragement, with the arranging of her mother-in-law. But now she's told to wait. And the truth is that both initiating and waiting, they're both expressions of faith. Now let's think about this for a minute. I don't care if you use the Myers-Briggs, the DISC, the now sweeping the world by storm Enneagram, whatever personality test you want to use, what, one, of the, one of the things that they will all measure in some way or another is are you an initiator or are you a responder? Are you a waiter? How many of you in this room would say, I just tend to be an initiator. I love to make stuff happen. It was that way in my career. It's that way in my home. I'm supposedly retired now, but I'm, I'm still an initiator. Raise your hand. Look around. Raise your hands high. Okay. How many would say, not me. That's the guy I'm married to. That's the woman I'm married to. I'm, I'm more of a responder. Raise your hands. That's pretty close to 50-50. It's also, according to my unscientific random survey, about 50-50 in a lot of your marriages, or at least the person you happen to be sitting by you who is wired opposite of you. Ellen is very much an initiator. We joked about it. I would not have had a shirt with abs drawn on it and my tattoo the first night 
had it not been for my lovely wife. When we didn't find one at the beach, I'm like, God has revealed his will. That was a dumb idea. We don't have to do this. And she's like, we are not giving up that easily. There's a thrift store, $2. We're, Albert has thrown it down and we're not gonna, he's not gonna have the last word. Thank you for the many appearances of that outfit on social media that I have observed today. The questions that I'm gathering from various Walk Through the Bible donors and board members who are also on Instagram, and yeah, thanks, thanks so much for that. You're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Ellen got the goal, you get the assist, man. It's uh, Initiators. What would get done in this world without them? Well, a lot of things that shouldn't get done because praise God, there's the rest of us over here. And there's people like Jesus over here who are wired like us. Only not true. Because Jesus spoke and the world came into existence. That kind of sounds like initiating. But he also says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And the knob is on the inside, and he's patiently waiting for us to respond. And he's this amazing balance between initiating and responding. And the story of Ruth celebrates both of those. Nobody is balanced. My mentor, Dr. Howard Hendricks, used to say, no one is balanced. Anyone you see who appears to be balanced is merely passing through the midpoint on their way from one extreme to the other. <laughs> That's why group leadership is a good thing, right? That's why marriage is a beautiful idea. That's why we have verses like, in the, in the multitude of counselors, there is great wisdom, because none of us, none of us is balanced. But God says, I celebrate both of those. And Ruth actually models both of those for us in a very short four-chapter book. You know, the only trouble with waiting <laughs> is that's what we have to do to find out. What will Boaz do? Stay tuned. Tomorrow, same Boaz station, same Boaz time. <laughs> What will he do? But the question tonight, though, the question tonight is above all that. It, it's the question of have you responded to your kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ who says, I want you to be part of my family. You know, all through the scripture, God created a perfect world. You heard about this morning. Sin messed it up. It messed up marriages, every other relationship. Most of all, it messed up our relationship with God. God loves people, but he, he can't coexist with sin. And so he brought judgment or discipline, even sent a flood. But always when there's judgment or discipline, there's always a remnant. There's always a leftover because our God is a God of mercy and grace. Aren't you glad we serve a God of second chances and new beginnings? We'd be in big trouble without that. And so God writes different scriptures to us to tell us of his love and to call us back into relationship. And sometimes that moves people. 
And there's a sacrifice system set up in the Old Testament to cover our sin for a time. There's prophets who preach, but by the end of the Old Testament, even though they're back living in the land of Israel after exile, the people forget God all over again. And for 400 years, God is silent. No prophets roaming the land. When God finally breaks the silence, he doesn't send another prophet because people didn't listen to his preachers anymore. Doesn't write another book because his books were no longer read very much. Doesn't do a miracle because back then they thought they were so scientific that they didn't need supernatural in their lives. This time, God does something he's never done before. God says, I'm going to go there myself. We use the word incarnation at Christmas. Carnation is a fleshy flower. I'm a carnivore. I'm a flesh-eating animal. Incarnation means to put on flesh. A mom in our church came up and said, got an illustration for you for Sunday. We were putting James to bed. We were praying, and he's looking up all around. and said, James, we're praying. We're talking to Jesus right now. And he says, Mom, you ever wish he'd just put on some skin sometime? She goes, wasn't that what you were talking about Sunday with the incarnation? So we could see God, God who is spirit, put on skin. Came to earth as a little bitty baby. You remember his first words? If you don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic, let me translate that for you. I love you. I want a relationship with you. Baby grows up, lives a perfect life without sin. What's he get for that perfect life? The cruelest death imaginable on a Roman cross, a place of shame between two criminals. Followers are disillusioned, they scatter. He's placed in a borrowed tomb. The third day, the women go to anoint his body. He's not there. An angel says, he's not here, he's alive. This Jesus whom you seek, he's alive. Resurrected, that was proof positive that the Father had stamped our debt of sin paid in full. Bible says, if you will place your trust in Jesus' death in your place. There's a simple song that says, I owed a debt I couldn't pay, and praise God, he paid a debt he didn't even owe. That's why Mount Hermon exists. That's why Mount Hermon exists, to lead people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Who comes to Mount Hermon? It's a lot of Bible junkies. It's a lot of Bible junkies. Give us more. Teach us more. This is the best place in the world that I teach because this is the hungriest, most thankful people. But you know what? In a room this size, there are, there are also folks here that are still checking out this Christianity thing. They're still going, there's parts of it that are really hard for me to swallow. Some of that stuff I haven't figured out yet either, and I've, I've known him for decades now. But tonight it's real simple. You're a sinner and I'm a sinner. 
Just like in the Garden of Eden, there's times we've decided, I know better what I need to be happy and fulfilled than God does. The Bible calls that sin. And our sin separates us from God. And no matter how hard we try to fix it, we cannot be good enough because the standard's perfection, and we all fall way short of that. But God, in his grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And if we simply receive his sacrifice in our place, God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. I receive him by faith. Please, make me your son, make me your daughter. Then he becomes our kinsman redeemer. And the story of Ruth suddenly is not historical. It's biographical. Will you close your eyes for a minute, please? You can simply say to God, God, I know that I've done things that displease you, things that are wrong in your eyes. Go ahead and tell him that. Exact words don't matter. It's the thought of your heart. And God, I understand that though you love me, you're also holy. And my sin separates me from you. Tell him that too. He knows it. He just needs to hear that we know it. God, tonight I place my trust in Jesus' death in my place. Thank you that he paid the death penalty that my sins deserved. I don't understand it all, but I believe, I put my faith, my trust in what Jesus has done for me. Father, thank you that now when you look at me, you don't see my sin. You see the blood of Jesus Christ that makes me pure. If you prayed that prayer or if that reflects the desire of your heart, nobody else is looking around, but I... I I want to I want to pray for you specifically. Will you just slip your hand up for a minute if you responded to that offer tonight? Thank you. Yep, thanks. Thank you. Father, we believe what you tell us in your word. We believe what you tell us in your word, that right now there's a party going on in heaven as angels are celebrating the fact that we just got some new brothers and sisters for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that each of these men and women would come talk to me, talk to Albert, talk to Mike, one of the other staff here. Lord, thank you for the simple power of a simple story that ultimately the book of Ruth points straight to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that, that you would take these fresh commitments 
and you would allow Mount Hermon and local churches and close Christian friends to come alongside these men and women and show them how to grow and to become mighty warriors for you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for tonight. In the awesome name of Jesus Christ, amen. I really would encourage you, just, just find me, find Albert, find one of us. We'd love to share a couple verses with you, swap email addresses, be able to stay in touch. Um, this was a great night, huh? This is a great night. Thank you, my friends. <laughs>